Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love to talk to creative people in all kinds of different fields about how they do their thing, how they keep it going. Uh, this week, I'm talking to somebody that's doing something that I've become very interested in in the last couple of years. His name is Tommy Haunton, and along with a business partner and writing partner, he's opening up an escape room. It's going to be in Koreatown here in Los Angeles. It's called Stash House. And it has a drug dealer theme. And I got to go to the space and talk to Tommy all about how you do that and how he got into that and what he loves about it. He talks about working in a corporate environment before that and and leaving to do his own thing. And it was really inspiring. And um, you'll hear some pounding and sawing and stuff uh, maybe in the background at different points in the podcast because they have a deadline. They have an escape room to build. And... uh, they got to get cracking on stuff. So uh, it was a lot of fun to talk to him. Before I get to that, I want to encourage you to go to DennisAnyone.net. There you can email me. You can see pictures that go with some of the podcasts. You can donate to my virtual tip jar. And I'm very happy to report that I just bought uh, some improved audio equipment. So I'm stepping up my game, not on this particular podcast. I haven't had time to figure out how to do it yet, but uh, soon. So that's exciting. Um that's about it. And here, without any further ado, is Tommy Haunton. Hey there, I'm coming to you from the Koreatown office of my guest today. He's doing something that I'm fascinated with. It's Tommy Haunton, and you're opening an escape room. Yes, I am. Uh, one of 10 million already in Los Angeles, so we figured why not a 10 million in one. I love it. I think I've, always, I've been doing, I've done probably like four, maybe four over the last year with different friends and stuff. And you see them popping up all over, and you wonder, when is the bubble going to burst? That's a good question. Uh, That's a common uh, parlor discussion uh, whenever we have owner meetups. The community in Southern California is very, very connected and very supportive. And so we have uh, room swaps where people will host, and people just come from different rooms and do it, and people meet. So I know most of the community, which is really... Really rewarding, but yeah, that's a common discussion. So it's more, it's a more supportive community than like, oh, they're coming into our turf or... I mean, there's some very big horror stories in a city like Austin, for example. One company moved in and got everyone else shut down. That's not good. They kind of rang the alarm bell uh, to the city and they shut everyone else down preemptively. Right. And they were kind of like the narc that would yeah. stay open, but no one else could. Well, the friends that I know that are into it are hardcore into it. So if you like escape rooms, you just want more. I think that's the big thing, is that you, you associate sort of some people, as long as they have a good experience, they'll want to do another one at some point. Yeah. Uh, some, maybe that's in six months or a year. Uh, others, maybe the same day. Right. But yeah, you want to be able to cater to people and create an experience that they want to go have another experience just like it. Yeah, I have a couple of friends that are hardcore into it and have done like hundreds. Yeah, uh, I'm, so. I'm in that ballpark. I've done about 200 now. I just broke 200. What was the first one that you went to? Uh, it was, Well, it depends. Um, there are different definitions of what a quote-unquote escape room is. Right. The first proper one, I guess, would be the trapped in a room with a zombie. Which was... I did that one. That was the first one I did. Yeah, and that was the first in many cities. Uh, He actually is the reason I got into these. Um, The guy that created that. Yeah, Marty Parker is his name. He's out of Ohio. Right. And uh, he was the first in many cities. He was smart, very aggressive in how he got started. And even though he kind of made a killing in it, he did help start the wave in a lot of cities. Yeah. Uh, L.A. was more or less... He was one of the first ones here uh, in many other cities across the country. 
he was the first. So that really launched a lot of people doing that and being like, oh, we can do something really cool with this. Yeah, we got out in like 10 seconds to spare. It was pulse pound. It was the most exciting thing that had ever happened to me. Yeah, it was the same way here. Uh, that was the first we'd done, and we got out with like, I think, the same thing, like a few seconds left. It was really exhilarating. Um, before that, I had done, there's a company called Scrap, which is out of Japan. Right. Uh, and then via San Francisco. So they came to the U.S. through San Francisco, and then they did a few satellite events in L.A., and I did their first one at the Queen Mary, and it was just really invigorating. It was different. It wasn't an escape room proper like people are used to now. It was a tabletop type experience where you have 22 teams or 20 teams at tables. Each table is a team solving more or less the same puzzles in the same space. And there might be a um, common area that you've got to go examine a, a thing at and then come back to your table and say what you've seen. Right. So uh, Scrap does events like that still. But I did that before the zombie thing. So it was in line with interactive entertainment. Right. But those were a few months apart. And those just kind of, I think, are responsible for me being in the space now. I love that. Now, just for people that don't haven't heard of escape rooms before or whatever, what, what are they in a basic uh, um, There's a lot pitch. of ways to describe it. A lot of times people say it's a real-life video game. Mm-hmm. Um, some people have really played, like, the cell phone versions of these. They're more or less based on, like, the old-school Flash versions of games where you're clicking on objects and trying to, like, rub things together. Right. Uh, I grew up playing point-and-click adventure games and, like, text adventure games that I, I loved doing that as a kid. So these are more or less real-life versions of that where you're interacting with the space, typically skinned or themed, whether it's a Egyptian tomb or a serial killer's basement, and there are puzzles around the space. And your incentive to escape is that you're going to die or be trapped in there forever. You've got a time limit, like an hour usually, and you solve puzzles uh, that basically open up spaces and eventually get you out. In your experience, what's the average price for an escape room 30. experience? Like 30 is kind of a thing. I've seen more or less. It's rare to see less than 30. Right. Uh, unless you offer like discounts or Groupons. Uh, but right. 30 is kind of their average price. I've seen more. Yeah. Uh, there's one company in town that charges a lot more, which is a bit ridiculous. But uh, again, I get it for higher production value or longer right. time periods you might want to. There's a company up in San Francisco that charges a lot more, but you're getting a 90 minute experience and the rooms are phenomenal. Right. Well, I think it's like, I've done a few different ones, and, and some where the production and the tech is amazing, like mm-hmm. you're actually holding cool things, and, yeah. you know, things move, and, like, that's like like uh, feature film kind of um, props and, and stuff. Oh, yeah, some go all out with production value. Other ones have really cool technology. Other ones are a little more... Um you know, lower scale, but still have really cool engaging puzzles. Yeah, there's a range in terms of what you can do with the space. Um, and then the price is different depending on how you book tickets. Some, yeah. a lot of people are insisting now on private bookings. So if you only have two people, they're trying to justify the cost of running that space when eight people can come play the same thing. Right. So you might pay a higher premium to get a private smaller booking. Right. Um, so the pricing model, I think, is still being figured out perfectly to make it fair for you know, being able to do private space but also not be $1,000 or something for one person to go play a room. Yeah. Now, in Los Angeles, have you seen escape rooms come and then close? Or are, are they all kind of the good ones kind of doing okay? No, the, the, I would say the good ones are lasting because they're yeah. good. Word of mouth is a very powerful driver in right. this business. Uh, like any form of entertainment, word of mouth is the one secret sauce that you can never really... Uh, I guess hijack. You there's did, no app for that. There's no app. You you <laughs> have to basically make an experience people buzz about, and if you do, then people will go and talk about it. It may not be the only thing you need to do for success, but it definitely helps. Uh, there are rooms that have closed, but those are more or less from really bad business-minded owners right. who open in a location that's bad or have really bad customer service or just don't care yeah. about doing it anymore. 
Um, so I would say that. There's one room that actually puzzlingly like, got a lot of press before it opened. It was in San, Santa Monica, and it was going to be by some CIA agent. And they got a lot of press about, like, former CIA agent opens an escape room. I thought you said CAA agent. Oh, sorry, agent? Yeah, yeah, no, 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 CIA. CAA yeah. agent they, would be If they had a, C, a CAA yeah. agent, they might have... Uh, Escaped the Death Star, as we exactly. know. Uh, which, for those who don't know, the CAA uh, agency is the big behemoth of an agency that's sort of like AT&T of agencies. Right. And their, uh, their location's called the Death Star. It is. It's, you go in there and you feel like you're in Gattaca. I was just yeah. there for a friend's play reading, and I'm like... Wow, this is not a fun building. You expect there to be a lot of uh, British, like imperial officers, yeah. just walking around. The thing is, uh, when they were building that building, I was interning in uh, Century City, right. and they screwed up something in the uh, groundwork of the area, and they destroyed the air conditioning for that entire block. Oh wow! So the building I was interning in had no AC. And oh. was, yeah, and it was because of that we were looking. Gawker was still around at the time. Yeah, uh, actually, it was, that was when it, in its heyday, and um, CAA was responsible for me having to work in like this burning in a totally building. separate building. Oh yeah, next, it was right next door. But yeah, and so they passed out free ice cream. That was their that was their, their way. make good. Yeah, they passed out ice cream bars for people. Yeah, that, call me when there's a coffee bean and tea leaf. I blend it. And by the time it uh, got to us, it was like this melted thing in the plastic. So it was just kind of an insult to injury. Mariah Carey didn't bring <laughs> the ice cream, did she? Nope, nope. She nope. did do that once and had a meltdown on MTV. Um, I don't know why I, I digress. <laughs> so what goes into the decision to like? I love escape rooms. I'm going to do it in an escape room. Uh, it's a complicated question. Um, but the easy answer is that I was deeply dissatisfied with my career and my job, and I wanted something else. What and were you doing? I was working at Disney in the uh, publicity wing for the television networks. Right. And at the same time, I was writing with my partner, Don, uh, who we'd been writing with uh, together for some time. And we'd had some very, very mild success. I would like a tepid amount where we'd, you know, gotten some jobs and things like that, but nothing enough to quit a day job over. Right. And I, I, looking back, I should have been much smarter about how I saved and planned, but I got complacent and comfortable at the day job and it just, it was sucking my soul dry. It was. It was. What not would a, you do day to day? You you would work with media outlets? Would you work with? Yeah, TV basically, we, we ran the websites that handled all press for all the networks. So okay. everything from ABC was the flagship one, of course, but everything from, you know, the, the kids' networks to at one point Soapnet. I mean, any sure. any network that Disney owned, ABC Family, yep, which is now Freeform, yeah, right. all that stuff. We we ran the websites for. And so all the photos, releases, and videos came through us. Right. So that's a lot to manage. It is. And it just, it was, it was, I've learned the corporate world, no matter where it is, whether it's at some, you know, paper company in the middle of nowhere or a giant corporate behemoth that people recognize the name of, uh, human behavior and corporate environments are all the same. It's just a giant Dilbert cartoon. Yeah, right, and, and you I realized decided you didn't want yeah. you wanted out of the panel. I was I was not cut out for the corporate world. I don't right. play that game. I have a huge chip on my shoulder when it comes to authority, especially authority that's not earned. Right, and Disney is a very classic corporate structure that is built on cronyism and political ass kissing. Right, and I am very bad at playing that game, and I don't like it. Did you have a Jerry Maguire moment when you left? Uh, no, I was fired. Oh, there you go. I, so, so all that was basically boiling over, and I was very, very unhappy, very right. depressed. And it, I felt very stuck because I had a golden pair of handcuffs. Right. And I had heard the term dead-end job before in different contexts, and I always more or less knew what it was, but I was in one. 
And I always told myself it was okay because this was not my career. It was a job. Right. This wasn't your dream. But the thing that I was lying to myself about was that the stuff I'd been doing with the writing was never going to take off because I was never doing good work. Right. I would go home at night and write, and we'd take meetings during the day. I'd sneak off during the day and say I had some, you know, BS class or doctor's appointment. Right. And they didn't care. Like, I did my job. As long as it was done, they didn't really care. Right. So I would go off, do some meetings, blah, blah, blah. And I would say, oh, this is good. But it was never forward progress. It felt like it was going somewhere, but it was more or less I was walking in a Hanna-Barbera cartoon and the background is repeating. Right. You know, it's, it's this very masturbatory... That's such a great image. Yeah, yeah. I get that. It's this very masturbatory gesture where you're like, you're going home and you're working on a page and you're like, yeah, that's a really good page and you're this is good work. And then you go home and the next day you're the same thing. And what you're actually doing is just delaying the inevitable that this is becoming your career. Right. And that's what I had done. And I think when the realization sunk in, I was very depressed. And finding immersive theater... And interactive stuff and, like, escape rooms was this giant awakening for me. It kind of got you out of your funk. Yeah. It was like, this is what I've always wanted to do. Right. Uh, I used and to... And now it's, now it's a business. People are doing it all it over the place. And I used to do scavenger hunts for my friends when I was younger. Right. I was very obsessed with theater. And I had all these sort of background things of storytelling and game creation and adventures that I would go on. It's a very active imagination. All these things that sort of led me to this weird space where I never knew what my experience would lead to. Right. And so when I saw escape rooms and that this stuff exists in immersive theater, that these things existed. The space, and people would pay for yeah, it. Yeah, that people were paying for it and that you could go and experience these different things, my head exploded. Right. And, and I, I became so passionate and excited about it. That it could be a job. Because it used to be like, I'll do this for a, a friend's birthday yeah, exactly. or whatever. But it doesn't, didn't feel like it, it was a hobby. your job. Yeah, it was a hobby or a fun thing, a parlor trick you could right. do inside. But when I saw all this was happening, I did the zombie room. And I emailed Marty, the creator, that day. And I said, I don't care what it is. I want to do this. I want to work with you. And so he became very supportive. And we actually, at one point, were going to work together. And he was based in... Ohio. Ohio. And so he was very supportive and encouraged me to, like... He first wanted us to take over his San Diego location. I brought in Don, my partner. Right. And uh, he was like, cool. Uh, let's work on this. So we looked for locations to San Diego. And he's like, let's, how about L.A.? We'll expand L.A. So we were doing all this great research, and then the terms he wanted for our partnership just were really, really strict. Yeah. And in the end, we realized it wasn't maybe smart to work with him if he was insisting on those. So what's crazy is even though we ended up not working with him, um, he was still incredibly supportive. That's awesome. And was just the sweetest, nicest guy. Everyone in this world knows who he is. He's kind of like cult of personality. But the guy is the nicest. I've got nothing bad to say. He's an amazing guy. And what's his name again? Marty Parker. Right on. The sweetest, sweetest guy who's just incredibly, he's, he's a sharp one as a businessman. Right. But as a person, one of the most upstanding people I've ever met. And so I got immense respect for the guy because he really encouraged us to keep going. And at Disney, I was just, I was so unhappy. I just did not care anymore. Yeah. I didn't, if I made a mistake, I just didn't care because it's easier to kick the can down the road than deal with it. Right. And my partner was let go from Paramount where he worked. Uh, and so he was, he had severance and he's like, I, I, I don't know what, what should we do? He was feeling stuck too. Right. And like, we should open our own, our room. That's amazing. And then around the same time, we also got a film. I, I have this image of you guys drunk somewhere at a bar, like the, the nine to five uh, moment. Yeah. 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 <laughs> our ties loosen being like, yeah, what are we going to do? Yeah, exactly. It wasn't as interesting, but yeah, it was more or less a moment like that being like, let's try this. Yeah. And then we got even a little more confidence when we realized that a script we'd been working on. 
uh, that a friend brought us in to do, brought in a bunch of writers to work on the script. He, he was brought in to help kind of like punch up and produce this project, then languishing a Lionsgate. Right. And we were brought in to, uh, with many of the writers to work on this. Uh, as like a throwing everything against the wall to see what sticks. Right. And it turns out we were the ones that stuck. Every other writer either left or got, let go, and we were left. And the film got greenlit with us as the writers. Is it public disturbance? Yes, it is. I saw that on your IMDb. Yep. I've got 20 questions about Joey Lawrence, uh, he's but a- I'll settle for one or two. Yeah, so that film got greenlit when we were last writers, and it yeah. got made. So it was a weird circumstance where, basically, I was going to quit Disney. Right. I had told myself, okay, this film is going to shoot in a few months. They're never going to give you the time off for the whole month. Right. So just quit. And I knew it was better than just And then like, you were going to be on the set. Yeah. Yeah. So it was great. And it was going to shoot out here, but I knew that it would give me the confidence to just say, I quit. With two weeks notice, like, I would be respectful. Right. In a way that I knew I would have something after the fact. It wouldn't just be, like, me impetuously going, I quit, then what now? Right. I knew, okay, we'll have an escape from opening. We've got a writing crew that's taking off now, finally. Uh, I had this confidence. And turns out I had made a mistake that I refused to correct or admit to. And I kind of lied about, I just, I, I lied and said I didn't do it. Which spent, sent my whole boss on this massive detective chase of finding out who did this mistake. He finds out it was me, and they ended up firing me for it. Which is hilarious, because uh, had I not... had I, you were planning to quit. Yeah. And had I gone into his office and just said it was me, I messed up, I would have gotten chewed out, but I probably would not have gotten fired. Right. So, and it, you remembered it. You, you remembered the mistake. Oh, yeah. I was, the, 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 it was because of the show Once Upon a Time. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, that always, that show is always yeah. is a life wrecker. Basically, some spoiler images. Uh, we have different systems for how we disseminate stuff right. to the press. And there is domestic press, international press. The domestic press, it was easy to manage that, that site because you could put spoilers in a separate section and just say, go live after the show airs. Right. That was easy. But for international, it was a pain. It was an old, rickety site that barely functioned. And so instead of having to go through and do it all like later on and remember it, I would just put the spoiler images up with it because no one ever noticed. That right. site was old. No one seemed to care. Right. And I did it for about a year, and no one ever noticed. Right. For any of the shows, the Shonda Rhimes shows, no one seemed to ever care. Yeah. But then one day, I guess, a fan site saw the spoiler images, and I don't watch the damn show. Right. Apparently, some character died, and uh, it got out, and they're like, who put these images up? Because the producers were so vain, they would troll their own right. fan sites to see what was coming up and what people were chattering about. Of course. So yeah, so they uh, saw these images, and it came back to us. Yeah. And I could have said, you know what, guys, I forgot it was me, I screwed up. But instead, I just said it wasn't me. And I suggested a few ways it could have happened that are very honest ways it could have right. happened. They didn't happen that way. Right. And I covered my tracks, but not well enough. Right. And uh, because I did that, they fired me. And it was weird. I've never been fired before. Yeah. And it was really surreal because I'd been there for a long time. Right. And it, I was shocked, though, at how quickly I, I was okay with it. Good. I was just like... Wow, that was a horrible place to work. I'm so glad I don't work there anymore. Right. And we were on Did the they scene. come with you to the come to you with the box and say pack your shit up? It, this is what's so funny. It happened so like cuz I've seen it happen. When they right. when they fired people, yeah. it was very brutal. You would get to work, they would find like they when you had this badge in when you got in. So they knew you were there. There's no animated birds flying nope. around. No. They would intercept you and catch you and basically you would never go back to your desk. I was at my desk. It was a Friday, Friday the 13th. Oh, wow. And I knew I was going to get yelled at or fired. They, I, I got this awkward knock-knock at my desk from my boss, who pulled me down to his boss's office and said, like, basically, we know you did this. And I was just like, well, yeah, okay. And I went into my boss and kind of made up an excuse as to why it happened and that I was stressed and, like, I didn't care anymore. And he went and told his boss. And so I knew I was going to get yelled at 
and put on some kind of suspension or fired. But people kept saying, and I, and I told all my coworkers like that I was working with what had happened. And I didn't blame. I just said I screwed up. I did. I lied, and I they asked me. So I didn't try to hide it. Like okay, yeah. did it. It wasn't malicious. It was just I didn't want to deal with it. Right. And so uh, I knew. And they're like, no, no, you won't get fired. You're fine. You're fine. So typically what happens is you're intercepted, but I was already at work that day and I figured I'm, well, I wasn't intercepted, so I'm probably going to be okay. And then like at four 30, I get a phone call from the head of the department who I was not a fan of. And he was not a fan of mine. Uh, he calls me down and it's very awkward. I'm like, hello. He's like, can you come down? I'm like, okay, hang up. I walk down. There's a HR lady down there. Oh my God. And I figured, okay, it's either going to be me being reamed or let go. Right. And I figured it was just being reamed. Yeah. I figured they're going to yell at me for half an hour, suspend me, put me on notice, whatever. Because I had also seen how lazy and awful a lot of employees were. <laughs> right. And I saw them get by with, just yeah. skate by. Right. And I figured, well, I've been a pretty decent employee. Right. The thing I didn't account for was I had very few allies at the top because I just didn't care. And I would rattle the cage and point things out that were badly designed or done. Right. So, yeah, anyway, I'm sitting there and he's like, we're going to have to let you go. And I said, okay. And I went back to my desk and he's like, pack your stuff and come back here and we'll walk you out. And I'm like, wait, I'm walking back to my desk, but there's no security there. And it's really surreal because I was just there. My boss had shut his door because he did was a coward. Uh, he knew it was happening. So I walked past his door, door shut. And the joke was, I clean out stuff to feel comfortable and happy. Like, I don't like stuff. So I had emptied my desk out a month before. Right. I had nothing left. Right. There was nothing left to pack. There it was, was empty. not a, even a, some post-its you no. wanted to take. I mean, yeah, everything that I wanted to take, even off supplies, were taken. They yeah. were gone. And so I was, my desk was empty and I'm just like, well, here's my coffee mug. I erased my emails just cause it's like, whatever. I logged off. I left my badge at my desk cause I didn't want to keep that. I took my name tag off the door and I about to, was about to walk off and I was like, shit, I left food in the fridge and I'm like, I'll be damned if they're getting my lunch. That's right. So I walk back, I got my lunch. I walk back for the elevator, hit the button and a coworker walks by. He's like, head not early. I'm like, yep. You better believe it. Long, yeah. long weekend. Yeah. And he's like, hey, well, have a good one. And I left and I walked out. And the weird part was I decided to park off campus that day. I don't know why. I Where would you work? In the Burbank lot? Yeah, at the okay. ABC building in Burbank. Okay, yeah, yeah. I usually park in the lot. And I didn't. I parked off lot for whatever reason. I went to get lunch and pick up something and I came back. And it was really surreal. I walked off the lot. And it's like, this is the last time I'm walking off here. And no, and I, of course I didn't go back to my boss's desk and get escorted out. Right. They were high to think that. And it was just weird. As I was sitting at my desk, I could have really messed things up. I could have erased the sites. I, I had access to everything still. And I didn't. Of course, I'm not malicious. And ultimately, what would that have done? It would have been more difficult for the people, my, my coworkers, the people I right. didn't want to hurt. So I'm not malicious, but it's just, I thought it was funny the whole time I'm sitting there being like, they could, there's no one watching me. Like I could yeah. have done all this, but it was because it was so last minute. Had it been longer and planned, they probably would have had it all planned out. So maybe the joy, the luck of it is they hated me so much. They wanted me gone so fast right. that I worked out. But yeah, a week later, it was just really surreal. I drive by the space and I'm like, it's weird. I spent so many years there and it feels like a blip. How many years? Eight. Wow. So you said you got over the shock of it pretty quick. There was about a week where I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? Like, this is real now. Because yeah. I had a month before the movie shot. Yeah. So I would come down here... I would kind of like mill about. It was just really strange. Being fired felt like, what now? It felt. I think it was still weird accepting that I was going to go full force with the writing and the consulting and the game design stuff. Because I was like, well, crap. What if I have to put this on my resume? I can't. Like, I've been fired. What do I do? Do I lie? Do I get someone else to lie for me? Like, what do I do? Right. And it was this weird panic sense of, of what now? 
And then once we got on the set for the film, it was like, oh, yeah, I'm cool. There's another place to be. Yeah. Um, tell me about the film. Like, what is, what's it about? Um, it's a prank movie uh, in the vein of, like, Borat or uh, Bad oh, Grandpa. Shit. Where it's... Those things make me very anxious. Um, yeah, they wanted real pranks because the it's YouTube celebrities, the Janoskians, who are these okay. Australian pranksters that are also musicians. Uh, they're basically some brothers and um, a, a childhood friend. Right. And uh, they do pranks on YouTube and they play music. And they wanted a feature in the same vein where they were kind of playing themselves. Right. Uh, doing real pranks on people, but the pranks were tied into a larger fictional narrative. I got it. So, yeah, we came up with some really clever pranks. Uh, it was We were rewriting based on an original uh, first draft, which was pretty rough. So we tossed a lot of it, kept a lot of the framework. The pranks are really fun to write. Um, How do you write a prank? It's the idea of, like, I have a really dark sense of humor, and okay. most are the things that are perhaps not inappropriate, but just, like, weird subversions of humor or of expectation. And so, I don't know. I also, like... I don't like being mean to people. Right. That's That's one of the weird things, is that I love pranks and all that, but I also hate being mean to people. Yeah, that's a tough th- needle to thread. It's a really tough thing to resolve. There's right. some cognitive dissonance there, for sure. Right. But, yeah, we would just have ideas, like, what's a funny scenario? What can, what can we do within the nature of the plot? So one of the plot lines is the... One of the brothers decides to quit the group. Right. And he goes to get a regular job. And, like, well, he's got to get fired from the job to get back in the band. So uh, how are these guys going to get him fired? Right. And there's, like, wacky ways you can get fired. Right. Within budget and that are legal, you know. Right. And the, his coworkers or whatever don't know. Yeah. And so there's one, actually, prank that Don and I are in. We have a cameo yeah. uh, in yeah. the background of one of the pranks. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not something we would have written by ourselves. But right. it was a really amazing experience to be pulled in. And we're really grateful uh, that we got to be part of it. When does it come out? or when can It'll be out it? on digital release before the end of the year. Fantastic. We just got to see the final cut of it, and uh, yeah, we were very pleasantly surprised with how it turned out. It came out good. Yeah, and Joey Lawrence, oh, I, it, it, again, it, it's built for their, for their, uh, their audience. Yeah, it's the, their fan base. But it, it is surprisingly uh, light and breezy, and um, yeah, it, there's some great actors in it. Uh, Mike Tyson? Mike Tyson was the nicest guy. What does he do in it? He plays what, what a. What can you say? He he plays a like a billionaire Mark Cuban like character. Oh, fun! Um, yeah, he he's a really sweet guy. He was sweet. Very very sweet. Very gentle. Terrifying to be around because you're just like he's giant. Even now he's still big. Yeah. And he could just end you with just a flick of his wrist, your head would be flying. How did he approach the role? Was he like a one take wonder? Uh, he was one of the more professional actors. Like I was very impressed. He came yeah. prepared. I mean, he knew his lines. It's clear he's trying to take his new position right. of fame seriously. Um, very few takes. Good. And he was willing to be pushed. Like, okay, might be a little more wacky. Yeah. Dance. Do it. Like he had some moves on him, but he was fun. He was he was a good guy. What about Joey Lawrence? Sweetest guy. Really? Mm-hmm. I hear Mitz. Okay, that's good. My aunt loves him, so it was really yeah. funny. Like the whoa, like blossom yeah. years. Of course. Uh, yeah, it was weird seeing him because it's just like yeah, I, my when I was a kid, you were in Blossom, and he has some of the same facial features. Right. Um, so it's weird to see a character that you've, you've seen growing up that yeah. my aunt idolized. I like Joey because he has gay vanity. Like, his, his shirts fit a certain way. Yes. Like, yeah. Yeah, he's very well put together. He, he's got it. And he's, what I think I like... all of it. His character was meant to be kind of a creepy, um, right. borderline, like, creeper mm. uh, who has an obsession with these guys. Right. Uh, but has, like, a, you know, a giant smile and you know he's, like, smiling as he's going to go murder someone or, like, you know, sell drugs to a child. Uh, so he had a, a good sense of humor to play against his type. 
Love it. Well, we'll watch for that. Um, when you mentioned your your writing partner, is your partner in writing and your partner in this adventure the same person? Yes, Don. Uh, okay. We were set up, uh, and yeah, people think I mean like domestic partner. No, uh, Don Don's married. Don's got a wife. Right. Um, but we are, for the most part, we spend time together pretty much like any couple would doing this in writing. Uh, yeah, we've been together for a number of years. A mutual friend set us up. Love it. So talk to me about, okay, we're going to make an escape room. What's the first thing you do? Did you, do you look for spaces? Do you think about... What's our theme? What's our story? So we had a leg up because of Marty. So we already had kind of a premise of like, okay, what are we going to do? And right. we had a bunch of theme and ideas mapped down, like written out. Right. But the problem was they were way too expensive because Marty was going to help fund this. This was us on our own with our yeah. own money. Right. We were going to try to do How can we do it ourselves? Lean and mean. And for me, one thing that I really want to push is immersion. That's the idea that the puzzles and the space are, are what they say they are. Right. Like, if you go to an escape room in, on Highland Avenue, you know you're on Highland Avenue. You're not really in ancient Egypt. This right. tomb is a setup. It's a piece that's right. built. And even if you are accepting that you're in Egypt, why would they build a room like this? Why are these puzzles here? Right. Why would a serial killer put a key that can open a door and let you escape and go tell the cops about him? Well, right. he's crazy. And I hate that excuse because in movies, a lot of times we've been working on projects where it's like I, I would get annoyed when we meet with someone. And it's, he's like, okay. There's one movie we worked on. Like This guy is a killer, and he lures people into the mountains to kill them. And I'm like, that's, uh, okay, that's a horrible idea. They're like, well, why? I said, because if he really is that brilliant, he would die up there. Like, I don't understand. Like, that's the, first of all, he's not going to be able to show they're going to die up there. Right. If you want to kill them, just cut their brakes and shoot them in their sleep. Like, that's easy. Right. I know it's not an interesting movie, but to me, I like having that logic. Well, well he's crazy. Well, no, he's not. He has access to money yeah. and resources. He's not crazy. Like, right. he may be eccentric, but I don't know. To me, the idea of saying someone's crazy yeah, as a not everybody is going to be Dennis Hopper in speed. Exactly. the bus and the da 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 You really have to, for me, you got to thread a lot of needles and yeah. really pull that thread tight to make that a justifiable reason why people do things. Right. So I like to have a little bit of a push of why is this here? So we were always looking, okay, can we find a space that justifies a story? And we were always talking about there is a restaurant here called Starry Kitchen that was an illegal restaurant op- operating in an apartment building. And it was one of the top reviewed, like on Yelp, restaurants in the area, even though it was like this secret underground restaurant. Yeah, I love that. And so we had this intriguing idea could we operate an escape room in the same way? And it's like, hey, well, can we operate in a sleazy apartment? What would happen there? Like a hooker thing might happen, but that's, that's, that's icky and deals with stuff that's not interesting. What can you have in an apartment? Maybe a drug dealer. Okay, that's interesting. You can have the sense of betrayal, a drug dealer kind of relationship. A twist happens. It would make sense. You could have a stash house. So the idea came from this premise. You can put something in a room, in an apartment. And we ignored the idea for a while. But then Don lives nearby the space we're sitting in right now. And he saw the sign. And when he looked at the space, he goes, this space is so weird. We could make this into stash house, which is what we'd call the apartment-themed idea. And I loved it. The building we're in is super, super strange. And it lended itself to us kind of playing around with the geography that this is a weird Koreatown apartment. When you walk in for the first time, are you looking around and going, oh, we could do something with this, we could do something with that? Is it, is it, is it like kid in a candy store? Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. And yes and no. I mean, yes, because the space was so weird, but there was, I mean, the space you're sitting in is very different from what it is day yeah. one. The walls were not here in a lot of places. The floor was nasty. There was a, a hid, there were hidden doors in the space that we found by tearing down walls. Oh, wow. Just all this weird stuff that we'd gotten to play around with or do uh, that were very, very, very different. 
But I think the premise was, yeah, we're going to make this look like an apartment, and there's some really cool geographical features of the space that will really surprise people. What can you tell us about the setup? Uh, the setup is that there is a business entrepreneur named Ray Jones okay. who has requested that you join him for a job interview in his apartment. Okay. Um, and when you join, you find out that Ray is actually a drug kingpin. Okay. And he likes recruiting intelligent people to join his gang. Uh, you find out the apartment is no longer his. It's in like a series of shell corporations and holdings. So it doesn't even go back to him. And, but it's where he used to live. So there's elements of him here. But basically, he's turned his old apartment into an escape room and hidden drugs throughout the apartment. Right. And you've got to find them all and flush them before the cops arrive. Oh, fun. And it's his way of testing you how you work under pressure. Right. With the motivated interest of the cops coming after you. Right. And if you can basically be smart and sharp enough under pressure to um, solve everything. And if you can, then Ray will reward you by not turning you in or right. blackmailing you and uh, letting you join the gang. So your goal is to join the gang. Your goal is to succeed. Yeah, your goal is to not go to jail or get arrested. Right. There is a bonus quest after. If you beat the game with enough time left, then you get access to turn the tables on Ray. And uh, by solving three additional puzzles that are much more complicated. Uh, And we put that in the space because I grew up in this escape room world playing with enthusiasts. Right. You know, I love these spaces. I love this game. Or these games. And so I have friends that are very aggressive and very good players. Right. So I want to make a game that they would excel at and have fun with that they wouldn't breeze through in 10 minutes. Right. But at the same time, it was still accessible to new players. Yeah, people had never done one before. So it's the, the bonus thing was, enough, plus we had so much space to work with yeah. that we have an extra area we wanted to incorporate, but we just didn't want to just throw it away with one puzzle in it. Right. So by making it the bonus area, it's kind of a rewarding piece where the premise is that if you beat the game with enough time left, you get contacted and told there's a space where Ray keeps real evidence. Like, it's a real secure area for you. Right. And you're told that you can turn the tables on him. If you get access to the space, you can find his evidence and actually turn him in. Wow. Do we meet Ray, or is that... Do you want to not say? Um, Ray's in our intro video. He's supposed to join you, but he uh, greets you via remote. Right. Uh, But we are doing a prequel event next week. At Think Tank Gallery as part of their Drinking Smoke and West Coastern show. Okay, fun. Uh, and the show, it's very, very different than a stash house. It's called Street Baptism. It's three chapters, three nights, each night is different. And they are slices from Ray's backstory. Right. Uh, his name was not always Ray. And you get to meet him, and you get to play a part in forming his uh, crucial kind of developmental moments of his career. All right. Backstory. So, yeah, uh, you have the one night's called The Deal, where you help him with his first drug deal. Right. Uh, night two is called The Hit, where you help him. Uh, he manipulates you into taking out another crew leader so that he can rise in the ranks of the chaos. Right. And in night three, he uh, is now on the way up to becoming the city's biggest dealer uh, and gets word that he has a chance to really make a big sale. Yeah. But is skeptical about the people on the other end of it. So you get to go help investigate those people. Intriguing. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's built for one or two people at a time. Right. And you will be engaging with two to three actors per night. Uh, and it is escape room, immersive theater kind of mixed. Right. And the big challenge for us is all the puzzles are diegetic. And what does that, that mean? That means that all the puzzles are in the context of the story. So it's not like they're just random Rubik's Cubes or uh, lock boxes sitting around right. for you to open for no reason. These are built, the puzzles are built in a way that you may have to manipulate someone. Um, so here's an example, not, not, not this. Right. But let's say you've got to interrogate someone, and the guy's not talking to you. He's like, you know, go away, I'm not talking to you. Right. 
So you got to figure out a way to make them talk, right? Because occasionally escape rooms will have actors or somebody that yeah. goes in this scenario. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've been in with like escaped inmates and mm-hmm. like a zombie, for example, and then there was an asylum patient that was, you know, and you sometimes you can get clues out of them. Yeah, and so the idea of I love those interactions, and so this is pushing that to the extreme where you're in a space, you've got a story, and something you've got to accomplish. So let's say this this uh, interrogation suspect is not talking to you. Right. And you get to go into his apartment or find something that's careful. Let's say you're on his Facebook profile. And you find that he's got his daughter in all of his pictures. So if you mention his daughter, he opens up. You realize through reading his profile and seeing it, just it's all there in your face. That this daughter's important to him. And if you find something valuable that you can threaten him with, he'll talk. Right. And that's, that's a puzzle. And granted, you have a lot of clues and things hinting at that. Right. And helping direct you to it. Uh, but yeah, if you mention that, then you're for, that's puzzle one is now he's talking to you. Right. And then they get a little more subtle and complex, which how do you manipulate someone? And the actors are on your side too. They want you to get to the end. So they may start dropping hints. Right. So it, 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 I, I see it as a mixture of a game and a performance where you're seeing a production. You're going to get to the end of it, but the way you get there is entirely up to you. And the ending is based on how you approach it. So you can be a jerk to this guy and very aggressive and you can say, you know, be ashamed if you never saw your daughter again. I'm going to make sure she never goes to school. You can threaten him. Right. And he will respond in a way that's still on rails within the story, but now you're getting him to respond aggressively. Versus you being good cop and being like, I would love to help you. Yeah. Your daughter seems very sweet. want you to see her. And he'll respond the other way. Right. So it, it's fun that you get to respond. So yeah, these three nights are us kind of playing in that space. Are you going to be acting in it? Do no. you like that? Does that appeal to you at all? Um, I grew up wanting to be an actor, for right. sure. But uh, I, I came to my senses later on uh, in college. But um, no, I, I've, I've done a little bit here and there, but it's only as a means to an end. Yeah. Plus, for me, it's weird to go in and see my friends acting in a show that I'm supposed to be fully immersed in. Right. And knowing how many people I know are going to be going through this that are in the community... I didn't want to run that. Plus, it's supposed to be street level and intimidating, and I am not very intimidating. Right, well. So I don't really think I could really lend myself well to uh, kind of street baptism implies a certain kind of uh, grittiness to it. And so our characters are kind of mobster-like, gangster-like, you know, people that seem physically intimidating and gruff. I'm not that. Who would play Ray Jones in a movie? Um, It depends. Uh, Ray's character, which you'll learn more about him. Ray is not his real name. Ray okay. is unknowable. And Ray, the person in the video, may not even be the actual Ray. Wow. So levels. Ray, Ray, you find out in some of the backstory, is basically a guy who realized at some point that if people didn't know who he really was, they couldn't mess with him. So Ray is more of a persona. Like than a Kaiser Sose. Pretty much. Interesting. So he, he kind of learned from the art of war, Machiavelli, usual suspects he name drops. Like, he's learned from pop culture. He's learned from history. He's learned from philosophy. To be this unknowable figure, it's hard to chase you. What's the writing process like with your partner when you're developing this story? Does it feel like a screenplay, or how does it Yeah, it's, it's, it's building a world, and Don will toss out an idea, and then I'll build on it, and vice versa. Okay. And it's really fun. It, it's snowballing, and it's kind of a yes-and, you know, kind of improv style, where it's like, what if we do this? And I just, to me, I am a tough critic. Yeah. And to me, I, I like to push stuff that I want to enjoy and go do. Right. You know, I, in the arbiter of my own taste, I can't pretend to make something that people are going to like. Right. So I'm hoping that if people, if I respond to it, knowing how picky I am, people will as well. What are escape room cliches that have become sort of like the thing you don't want to do because everyone's already, it's been done or it's a, it's a cop out or are there things that are like, this is what we're, we're not going to do any of these types of things. Um, to me, the whole, I mean, there's a lot of line item, like blacklight puzzles. Yeah. 
Uh, <laughs> I love it. Uh, just a cigarette. Oh, fuck those black light puzzles. I mean, been there. The reason they don't like them is because people do a dumb thing where if you have a black light flashlight in a space, right? People are going to go over the whole goddamn space looking for stuff. Because sure enough, some places will use a black light in more than one way. And you're now having to go hunt and peck over the entire goddamn room looking for a, some tiny number yeah. under a barrel somewhere. Right. To me, finding and seeking is not fun. I hate that. If people you like solving. Solve it. And I don't mind a little bit of light finding. But if something's... A arbi- little light finding. If something is arbitrarily <laughs> wedged in a corner yeah. or in an electric outlet, then you can your room should just burn down. Right. Uh, to me, I don't like ripping things apart. But as soon as someone finds something in a weird spot, you're giving permission for someone to rip things apart. I'm polite. I don't want to rip things off the walls right. or break things. And yet, some people insist upon doing it. I played one room where something was inside of a damn ceiling tile. You had to lift a part of the drop ceiling. And you had to... Did, did Was there any clue no. to do that? There was some bullshit thing written in a magazine you could barely read. And <laughs> I don't know. This is the big thing to me. Is the people who are game designers... Right. Uh, they get to that title by being game designers. Design is knowing how something works. It knows the the structure of a flow of how something is built. An architect knows how a building is supposed to flow. You know, a writer is supposed to know how a story is supposed to flow. It doesn't mean they're necessarily good at it, but at least they have the knowledge of it. Right. You look at a movie, even a really bad one, that's at least produced by a major studio, and you can look back and see, like, I can see why this is structured the way it is. There's right. a certain language to the way structure is, is built. And you can break rules for sure. But certain things should not be broken. It's like the Matrix, learning which rules you can bend, which ones you can break. Um, you learn that when you start doing it. Yeah. The problem is if you don't go in mindful about how design works, you're not going to do anything right. Yeah. You may stumble upon something by mistake, but it's the equivalent of you go to a restaurant and you eat a meal. Are you magically a chef? Yeah. Are you a restaurateur? No. You passively consume something. It does not mean you know how to make it. Right. Design, by its very nature, is meant to be, like the podcast, 99% invisible. Really good design blends in and seems so deceptively simple that it seems foolproof. Right. Duh. Completely logical why this is the way it is. But the way it gets there is not by accident. It was carved. You don't see how things are built because the nature of it is it's not meant to look complicated. It's meant to be simple. Yeah. That's the frustrating part, is game design is really difficult for people to realize how it works. And I want to go and walk through most designers and be like, this room makes no sense. But I, I, I can't, because I try to be polite and respectful. But that's the big thing for me, is everything should make sense and flow well. Right. You could have an argument as to why it may not flow well, and that gets into more discussion of like why isn't this working, but you have to be on the same level at least to discuss that. Right. Versus someone that... You know, has money because they used to run a cash for gold business. It's like, <laughs> let's make an escape room. Right. And they open some of the worst rooms you've ever played. Right. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, it seems like something that somebody can decide, I'm just going to do that and not have any background in the kind of creation that you need to have. Yeah, it seems deceptively simple. Yeah. That's the real challenge, is that it seems deceptively simple. And in reality, it's not. In reality, tossing some Sudokus in a room and calling it a day is not designing a room yeah. or a puzzle. It's just it's lazy. How um, how much do you have to do before you open? Are you like, is it like, are we going to make it? Yeah, we know we're going to open with some things that are not 100%. Yeah. We have been screwed over by some fabricators. 
Okay. Uh, we have one, hopefully, that's delivering a puzzle that's one of the last big set pieces we have. Right. Once that's installed, we'll have a functional game. I love it. And so we can start testing with that and just keep building. We want to do a lot more set design and stuff in the space. Yeah. That's more, uh, we'll make the room prettier. Yeah. But we want the functional game. And once that's there, then we'll start testing. There you go. Um, what's your favorite part of it? What, should, what part do you like the most, that you just enjoy the most? Of, of operating, of designing, of... Yeah. Like, oh, I love doing these kind of puzzles, or I love, like, is there a part that you just, is your favorite? Yeah, I, I, I think people that know me well enough know how I design, and to me, my favorite thing, I mean, one, is that I encourage anyone that is a fan of anything, whether it's writing or designing, keep a list of things you enjoy, of moments, especially moments you like, because no one works in a vacuum. And to me, the only judge I can trust is myself when it comes to things I enjoy. Right. So I keep a list of moments that surprise me, wow me, make me happy, make me sad. And I've got a giant, just ongoing list of things I like. And I try to capture those, kind of the DNA of that. And you write these things down. Yeah. So I have, and so the DNA of those surprises, of those moments, I love. And so and you see that in, in, in other escape rooms and movies. Or you, yeah, in, in, from in video games, in real life, just these moments of surprise, even in dreams. Like, I'll keep a list, an ongoing list of things that surprise me or delight me. And one of the things that delights me consistently is when something is hidden in plain sight, right in front of you, and you have to look at it in new, a new way. Um, I love that. Those are really exciting. So we have some of those in our space. But the idea that something has been staring you in the face the entire time uh, the designer Jonathan Blow, who created the games Braid and The Witness, is his design for puzzles is just transcendent. It is it is stunning when you solve one of his puzzles. They are beautiful and haunting and amazing. The way they've been staring at you sometimes the whole time, and they might seem overly difficult and complex. But when you look back, and the roots of them are just sitting there, and you're like, oh my god, this is. It's beautiful. So, to me, the language... Does he of, have puzzles in L.A.? Uh, no, he's, he's a video game designer. Oh, videos. Okay. But I would... I, if he designed a room, I would play it in a heartbeat. I would... Yeah. I would travel anywhere in the world to go play anything he designed. That's amazing. Um, but that's the thing is, it, for him, it took almost, what, seven years for his last game? Yeah. Because he is so meticulous and artful at what he does. I love that. Um, for your scenario, Stash House, do you have to have fake drugs? Do you have to have... Yep. Are you buying... Uh, are you spray painting Tic Tacs or what? How, what how's that going to be? Uh, we'll not be using real drugs. Uh, yeah. We'll be using uh, baking soda. Okay, cool. For cocaine. Yes. Baking Love soda. It. Freeze-dried baking soda. Um, and you also picked a grown-up scenario. So it doesn't seem like the kiddies are going to It is not. This is definitely... The, this is... Uh, we're calling it like GTA. If you play GTA games, and there are kids that played it. I played what it is that? Grand Theft Auto. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's in the vein and humor of Grand Theft Auto. It's, right. it's not meant to be scary, right. but there are moments of like levity and moments of like surprise or like crime. But it's not meant to be scary. Uh, yeah. But yeah, we want to say eighteen plus for adult themes. But if a parent, like I, I am friends, people I met actually the thing that I met you at uh, Escape Room Jam. So there are some people that that say they have very mature kids, and if your kids can watch an R-rated movie, yeah, and you trust them, like I, then they can come play. But we we for a typical reason we won't have people right. but if i know someone or they basically make an we'll make an exception yeah but for the most part yeah 18 this plus. ain't no jamboree exactly exactly this okay. is not the gap kids or the the zoo or something you mentioned uh this event that we were at our my friend jeb havens who you also know your friend um past podcast guest uh he's a musician but he's also a games guy mm-hmm. and he's uh he started he did this thing called the escape jam which was like enthusiasts like yourself came he got a Jeb got an Airbnb house, and they were divided into teams, and each team had to create a room, and then they got to play other people's rooms, and um, 
I thought it was so much fun. It, what really makes me mad is that I wish more designers of, or owners would go do that. Because iterative design is the backbone of design. What and kind of design? Iterative. Uh, iterations. Okay. Uh, and having testing at different milestones forces you to get better. It forces you to watch why people are not solving things. Because this raises a philosophical question. Why do you build this stuff? Is it to for your own perverse pleasure? And there are some haunts... Uh, that design haunts that are impossible to get through that torture you because they enjoy watching people suffer. Right. But if you're an owner that wants people to have fun, why make something impossible? Is it about the people that succeed or getting rewarded? Is it about punishing people that can't think like you? Why are you opening the space? And so for the most part, it's like people should have fun and experience the joy of it. You get that by watching people solve. And when people get frustrated and angry at the puzzles, that's not fun. Right. You should make them where they're challenging but still solvable. Yeah. And not illogical with these crazy leaps of logic to solve. So most owners, like I've seen points where you see someone calling for a hint and they're like, yeah, people always call for hints on that. What? If I had hair in my head, I'd be ripping it out because like that is telling you something. That <laughs> right. is telling you that is a right. bad design puzzle that yeah. you should be fixing. It's too hard. There needs to be something else. Yeah. It's confusing. Yeah. They're missing something. There should be no bottlenecks where people keep asking for hints. Yeah. If that's, like, for us, if people keep asking for the same hints over and over again, yeah, we're changing that. We're finding a way to make it better. Right. The best owners, their rooms are always changing. Not in an arbitrary way. When they've got a perfect design, they'll keep it. Right. But if people are struggling, they'll fix it. Always. The really bad owners have no idea what the hell that even means. Right. So by forcing people to go and play and learn how to do iterative design is so damn important. And that is something that people should know from the beginning of going to this business, but they don't. A lot of people just come up with their puzzle and leave it the way it is no matter how people play it. Yeah, as if, as if they've magically shit out some golden egg that's nuts perfect. Right. And to me, the idea that I don't, like, as a writer, if an actor has a better way of saying something, let's right. bring it on. Unless it's specific for a plot point and we need to use a word or whatever, we'll work it out. But to me... Creation is a collaboration. Yeah. The idea that we don't shit out golden writing. I'm not David Mamet where I insist on you're saying something this perfect way. We're not Shakespeare. Puzzles are not crafted perfectly either. Like, you can have a really good idea, but what's the intention of it? For people to solve it or for you to laugh at how good it is? Right. If you want to make a room or a space or a puzzle or a game that's impossible to solve but you claim it's perfect, great. Don't release it and expect people to enjoy it. Right. But for us, we want to have experience that has things that I genuinely enjoy. That I want people to experience the same joy and fun that I have when I do these things. Right. And if people get frustrated, that's not doing that. Right. Then you need to take a look at it. I thought the Jeb event, the Escape Jam was so much fun because everything was like construction paper and fake keypads. It was all like low-tech stuff. But it, that was part of the charm of it, ultimately. I just, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, there was no, there were no cost limitations. There were yeah. no experience elements that were difficult to uh, deal with when you're really an owner. So I like that it was kind of a blue sky imaginary event. But what I love is that if more people tried that before they started out, which it would have been fun. Had we, going back, known that, I think we would have probably tried that first. We would have done all that stuff first for our space. Right. And then built it up. And seeing, okay, what's the cost to do something like this? Right. But it's really exciting, I think, to play with no limitations and have this sense of imagination. Because I think you can create some really cool stuff. Yeah. Versus the other way going, okay, we got ten grand. what props can we buy? Right. You had a spaceship in the bathtub. We did. an amazing uh, control panel made out of pipe cleaners and construction paper and... It was really cool. I, I, I have I had no hand in the actual art. That was okay. that was my teammates. But it was really fun to have the idea and like see the amazing stuff they did. Yeah, I, I was nervous honestly going in. I 
it was the only person that has a space or has skin in the game, so to speak, as an owner. Right. This uh, is your thing. Another owner was supposed to join as well, but he couldn't. And so I was very, very nervous going in because I did not want to dominate our team. Right. And I wanted to have fun just kind of being a participant. But I was worried the first few minutes of our brainstorming was a little bit rough. And I was just trying to be supportive and challenge people to make right. a really strong theme. But right. once we got going, I, I was really fun to cut loose. And I love my team. Uh, they were so much fun to work with. Good. Well, it was a great event. I loved it. All right. You picked some questions from the observation deck. What do we got? Okay. So what do we got? What's the biggest lie you ever told in a job interview or an audition? That's a good one. Um, I lied and said I knew how to use a Mac in Photoshop for the job at Disney. Right. Uh, when I got hired for it, I was like, shit, I better learn how to do this. Right. Thankfully, the first couple weeks, there was a very anal, retentive uh, employee who's a very nice guy, but he taught me how to do everything very slowly right. and kept apologizing, going, I know you know how to do all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, no, take your time. Right, because you were learning it for the first time. I was so lucky. He acted like it was a refresher. Completely. I love He's like, it. I know this is going way too slow. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> take, take your time. That's a good one. That's a biggie. Yeah, I was hoping that it would yeah. never come up. But when he, I got hired, I'm like, great, shit. Yeah, exactly. That's the way you, you did what you needed to do. What's the most crazy thing you've done in pursuit of a crush? Um, there was a girl named Caroline I was in love with for years. I went to school with from sixth grade all the way until college. Uh, but. In seventh grade, I got all my money together, and I spent, like, 30 bucks on these, like, little... They called them balloonograms. But you could send them to people in school. It was, like, grandparents. Right, right, right. So I spent 30 bucks and got her the most number of balloons. So they brought in, like, this giant pack of balloons, and I sent it to her, and she... I signed it from your, like, secret crush. Right. And some jerk took credit for it. Some guy took credit for it. And I never admitted. And then that same year, I sent flowers to a girl using my sister's credit card. Uh, and lied and said it was for my science teacher's mom's funeral. Right. Uh, and in reality, it's this girl, Betsy. And again, same thing. I sign like your secret crush. And uh, I get home one day from school, and there's a voicemail from the flower company going like, Betsy doesn't know who it is. Can we tell her? And I was scared that my sister would find out. And so I erased the message. And I ended up telling Betsy a few years ago. Oh, that was recently. One of, yeah, that was one of her life's great mysteries. Wow. So, How did she react when you told her, you know, remember those flowers? Um, she laughed and said, like, I always wondered who it was. Wow. And she's like, one of my life's great mysteries solved. There you go. And you didn't, she didn't kiss you and like, and now it's on. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. She, she I, I have not seen her since. All right. But I just. You owned, it, you owned up to it. That's I, I felt it was a weird, uh, cathartic moment. Yeah. That's amazing. That's a good one. What's a voicemail that was left for you that play, you played more than once? Yeah. Um, so when I got my cell phone in college, I went to school in St. Louis. I got a St. Louis number my yeah. freshman year, my own cell phone. And I immediately began receiving calls for a drug dealer named Nick. Right. Um, those have continued to this day. I love it. And I am not Nick. And I still get calls and voicemails and texts for Nick. I love that because you're sort of putting that world into this project. It is, is, is there um, resonance with Nick in the escape room? There's a lot of terminology and like just lifestyle choices we've learned. Because I've done some deep stalking on Facebook. I've looked up numbers. Like I've, I've done a lot of research into this world in St. Louis. And it's really surreal because I went to school in the same city. Yet this is a world that's very, very disconnected from my life. Yeah. As like a, you know, a middle class white kid from Kansas. The idea that there's this urban drug like dealer culture in St. Louis that I was never a part of, but it is a hotbed. Yeah, it was really surreal, but uh, I've learned a lot. And how I, many messages would you say you got from Nick, or like how often do you get one? Um, at one point during its peak, it was multiple times a day. Wow. I'll sometimes go a drought without any for a few months, and then it'll pick up again. But I, I have them on a website. 
That's amazing. All the voicemails. We can listen. Can like our listeners listen to if them? If you'd like to, this is a nick.com. Nick. This, this, this isn't nick.com. This isn't nick.com. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it's very strange. But I just documented. So yeah, I would say his voicemails I've listened to. Yeah. Not his, but ones for him. Of course. Uh, from his grandma, from his dad, from people drunk looking to get hit up for drugs. Amazing. It's pretty entertaining. That is so amazing. Uh, and not to make fun of the people, I, I it's a very sensitive thing, and at some point I may just erase it. But I do, it's it, to me, it's more of a fascination with his. This is a world I've never seen. Yes, it's a, it's like an archaeological dig, and, and the fact that if they knew who I was, the most awkward, like pale white guy, <laughs> right. that they would like, I'm the last person they'd be calling to get drugs. Now, what was your outgoing message like? Was it generic enough that they would? No, leave? it's I have these hilarious old Radio Shack messages from the 80s. Yeah, and I never changed it, and so they listen to it, and they still leave a message going, "Yeah, a drug dealer in St. Louis has an ironic old 80s answering machine message." Yeah, sure, that's normal. How? And in fact, actually, there's one from his grandma. Where as she's hanging up, she's like, Nikki, I'm calling to wish you a Merry Christmas. And at the end of she's hanging up, she goes, I don't know what's up with his voicemail. That's so funny. <laughs> How um, blunt are they about what they want? Or are they speaking in code? Um, like, I want to get a, a large one or a... Or do they say, I want a dime bag of cocaine? Very rarely do they. I, I think he's just a pot dealer, but very rarely do they actually come clean. It's good. For a long time, I didn't know what the hell it was. They kept yeah. going, hey, you good? Like, Taisha, say you good. And I'm yeah. like... Does that mean I'm good in bed? Does that mean I'm, I'm a good right. person? Like, what is And I'm like, or people just really care about my well-being. Yeah. That's so sweet. I love and it. And I realize, good as you, are you holding? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they'll use terms like Reggie, which is just like regular, like, dime bag weed. Uh, okay. But I've learned terms. But yeah, it's, it's pretty subtle. Yeah. And sometimes I would respond back like, hello, I have tasty drugs for you to buy. Good batch. I and then, of it. course, they'll get really cagey and be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I love that. Um, going back to the escape room. Yes. When it's going to be operational, where will you be physically? We'll be in this space. We'll be in our back office. We write in, and also the game master station's right there. Which right is on. Pointing. And you, can you look at things? Do you have... Yeah, we've, that are... when we walk out, I'll show you. We've got cameras everywhere. Wow. And microphones, so you can hear. And yeah, the big thing is that if people do get stuck, we want to be able to help them. Yeah. Obviously, we want them to get through, but also we're going to make note of where people get stuck and fix it. So progressively, it'll be... People are always going to get stuck at points, but we want to make it where it's not always at the same spot. And if they are, we can help them immediately. It's almost like a Broadway show. Like, you have your out-of-town tryout, and yes. then you open. Yeah, you have your previews, you've got yeah. your alpha and beta testing, and then you yeah. have your... Your opening run is more or less your previews. Right. One owner says three months. Some people say 40, 40 groups until you're really happy with it. But there's different numbers. But yeah, the first couple weeks to a month is going to be your previews. Yeah. And then once the kinks worked out, then you're pretty happy with it. Right. Um, but yeah, we'll be watching. The reason I want to watch and have everyone like like a hawk, all this stuff, is it's annoying when you're stuck and you basically want help for someone to go like, uh, okay, um, what's the last thing you guys did? You're wasting your time explaining, as the clock's ticking, what they should have been watching. Yeah. And so instead of that, it's like, Okay, you're close. Look to the left. You can coach them. They feel like you've been paying attention. You save them time. Yeah. Um, if something breaks, you can catch it immediately. Yeah. It sucks that they're sitting there for five minutes tiddling, you know, messing with something, and it's not working. Yeah. And you're like, oh, sorry, that's broken. No, that shouldn't be how people I, I was. I did an escape room where we... Where the, the, the big effect at the end to get us out wouldn't work, and the actor that was in there was kind of kept fiddling with it oh. and it was and we we would have escaped but we didn't get to have the moment because the the prop didn't work um is there something looking back when you were a kid that makes sense with where you are now like yes. oh this is so perfect for where i've always been yeah into this stuff. uh three things uh when i was a kid there was yeah. a big park across our house across from our house and my sister and i 
saw someone putting notes in different random spots. <gasps> and it was a scavenger hunt. And we found four notes around the park. The last one was about Mary uh, had a little lamb and about where it would go. And it was school. And there was a school nearby, but still far enough away that we didn't want to go wander around. Right. So I never actually found out what it was for. Right. Or who did it or why. But that was a huge thing. Did you... But did you keep it... Had they done it already or had they set it up and then you got there first? They set it up. We didn't take any of the clues with us, but we okay. followed them and found the path. And oh. we don't know what would have happened. So you didn't mess up. We didn't know. We okay, didn't mess good. up. But we went and did one for our neighbors. We had... They, these kids had a really strict coach father who actually made them call him coach. Okay. Uh, and they could not have sugar of any kind. And so we got cotton candy, like this old, like, nasty cotton candy that's in the packages... And we hit it for them and did a scavenger hunt around their backyard. Oh, fun. And they got cotton candy. Uh, that was really fun. That was the first thing I ever planned game-wise. Yeah. And then my aunt and uncle used to do elaborate Easter egg hunts for me and my cousins. Yeah. Um, those were really fun. So, randomly, in high school, I did one for a girl I had a crush on one year. Right. And then, for my friends, these elaborate treasure hunts for Christmas presents, for Valentine's Day. And the joy I got from watching them do right. that was exhilarating. Yeah. And I've always been chasing that kind of, that idea of watching people have fun and bond and feel smart and connected. There's something about solving things together as a team that gives you this adrenaline and dopamine that we're missing now. People are very... I think so. Is there something about our our lives become so digital that being in a room with people touching things, it feels good? Completely. I think being, we're very disconnected. Even though we're very connected. Right. And I think the chance to really bond and be together as a group and solve things as a group is a part of our core reason of being. Right. As these primal primitive creatures that exist in tribal communities and and, uh, nomadic societies, that we've evolved away from that as a society, but as people, we haven't. Right. We still crave a lot of these things. Well, that's that's what they talk about with PTSD. Like, the soldiers like the community of the the, the troop or their their comrades. Like, Mm -hmm. that... That is evolutionarily the way we're wired. To we're be yeah. with people. Yeah, doing and, and not only that, but be belong. It's why there's nationalism and pride in whether your religion or your your neighborhood or your country. Right. It, it's pride in belonging to something, even if it's arbitrarily assigned. Right. Um, it, it's this pride, and so that's kind of the ultimate thing that we we've, we've always wanted to push is that people can do better together yeah. and bond and have these moments of excitement and connection yeah. that's hard to get. When you're always connected to a screen. Yeah, and I, I hear you. Are you going to have merch? Uh, no, we have, yeah, no need to have merchandise. No ne- no need, yeah. Um, you have some more questions? Uh, yeah. Okay. Have you ever written a fan letter? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I wrote a letter to David Fincher, the director, oh, yeah. after I saw Fight Club for the first time. And I absolutely loved the movie. Wrote him a fan letter. I just found an address online, which I later found out was CAA. Wow. And he wrote back. Oh, wow. What did he say? Uh, I wrote to him that I was a big fan of his movies. I watched Fight Club, and then I watched his other films, which is easy at that point, because he'd only done three films at that point. So I watched them. I watched Alien 3 and 7 and The Game, and I just, I loved them. And I wrote to him, and I said, I, at that point, had not considered, as a high school student, going into film at all. Right. But I loved his movies, and if I ever did, I'd love to work with him. Or maybe I was just being too hopeful or crazy. So he writes back, uh, thank you for your uh, kind note. Uh, hopeful, hmm, you never know, Fincher. Oh, cool. It was handwritten on his own stationery and it. signed by him. And it was really surreal that I got that. I still have it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I wrote that and had, That's awesome. that was a seed of pursuing filmmaking that I never thought of, but getting at that moment, I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. A connection with somebody that says, you know, you can, it's, I've done it. A David Fincher escape room. Oh, 
I mean, that sounds like kind of an amazing... He's got such a sensibility, and his stuff is so creepy sometimes. If we had the lighting... I mean, if we had the budget... He's also a very expensive director. Yeah. Uh, There's reason there's a lot of canceled Fincher projects, because the budget's escalated. But if we had the budget, I would die to create something like that. That'd be amazing. All right, you got a few more. Uh, Worst job I ever had, um, besides Disney, uh, I was in a musical... um, I take it back. Disney was not a horrible job. It just was not for me. Yeah. Um... I was Jack and Jack and the Beanstalk in a kid's musical at a very successful theater in my hometown of Wichita, Kansas, called The right. Crown Uptown. It was this beautiful indoor dinner theater that had, like, 20 rows of seating. It was huge. Right. It had, like, an arch ceiling that looked like it was stars. It was gorgeous. And they would pack in on Fridays these matinees for kids, and there would be three of them. And they'd pack in these kids from schools, hundreds of them. Right. And they would do these cheesy musicals for, like, fairy tales in the public domain. And they would get uh, actors to do their night shows from different, like, reps across the country. Right. they do, like, summer stock or whatever. they basically pack them in for legitimate shows and basically rope them into doing these shitty children's shows because they had nothing else to do during the day. Right. So I auditioned for the show thinking I was an actor and I could sing. Right. I could act, but I could not sing. But the guy cast me anyway. And so I was the lead in a musical for kids where I had to sing six songs and I could not carry a tune. (laughs) And I was around these real professional actors and singers who were bitter and drunk and horny. And I was... And not having it I was this this high school kid. And they were mean and bitter and weird. They they were older. Oh, yeah. And uh, bitter with the, the... one guy was just this drunk who would just sit back there in a wife beater and just and just just chug on this this bottle. And he had like you know three days beard growth and just like ah these damn fucking kids, man. Are they ever gonna go away? But they feed me. Like he just these weird arguments with himself. Oh my god! And so then he go out and perform. Like, hey kids, I'm the right. circus man, um, this darkest clown ever. And they insisted on us walking through the audience and having these interactive moments. And the kids were awful. Like, I would have magic beans. I'd have to show them, like, hey, kids, what is some magic beans? And, like, those aren't beans. Those are rocks. And I'm like, no, kids, those are beans. Go with it. Go and with the, it. The cow was a person. Yes, and. The cow was two people leaning over. Right. With a bag that was colored draped over them. Right. And they could not see. And the kids would poke the cow. Like, the cow's got legs. How long did this run? For eight weeks. And after we had to do a Q&A with the kids, like, as they, we, they, we signed yeah. autographs, there was a very flamboyantly gay man who played the giant he was a little bit miscast. Uh, but one of the kids was like, there's a man like you on my block, and my mom says not to talk to him. Just That's nice. Weird stuff yeah. like that, where you're like, what do you say to that? Like, Kyle yeah. was like, what do I say? Yeah. And he's like, well, yeah, you better not talk to me. I'd be like, oh, shit. Yeah. So we'd have moments where we could, like, have fun and laugh, but... That, yeah, that was humor. That was looking... That was, yeah. Looking back, I laugh at it, but at the time... It was oof, a nightmare. It felt like... Were the songs original, or were they songs that, you like, people would know? Original. Oh, wow. Like, one of the songs, the lyrics... I won't, I won't torture you by singing, okay. but it was, My name is Jack, and we are living happy now. Just Josephine and mother, Josephine's the cow. Something along the lines of wow. that. Wow. Uh, yeah, that was the opening right. song. Okay. A, a little bit too on the nose, a little bit too uh, sure. plot heavy. You know, but a lot, they have a lot to set up. The oh, kids. the other fun part. The the beanstalk was made, it was just the, the thick rope you had to climb in gym, right. painted green, uh, and they had it hung up by a sort of like fishing line. Right. If you touched that damn thing, it would snap. And that goddamn thing hit me in the head more times where I would I would act like I was climbing it. So I would have my hands very clearly not touching it, acting like I was climbing it, which was like I was jerking off an elephant. And it was just like <laughs> climbing it. And occasionally I might brush against it and it would fall and hit me in the head. And I had to act like the beanstalk was like, oh, yeah. That's, it's, that's no problem. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. That's crazy. That's a good one. 
Uh, what's do you have any other um, final one? Uh, yeah. What was your favorite or most memorable birthday? Uh, I hate celebrating birthdays because of this. My parents were very kind and thought that I would enjoy a surprise party. Yeah. So they asked someone at school they thought was my friend. And I was always very, very private, very quiet. Right. I didn't really share a lot of myself. And I'm still that same way, uh, where I hate being open about things, um, about myself at least. So I never told them who my friends were. They knew a few people just from, like, childhood and who, like, they drive me to go see. But they asked this girl in seventh grade who my friends were. And she told them her friends. So they threw a party for me one day. And I had to go into this um, bowling alley. And, oh, wait, no, sorry. I'm jumping ahead. I went to a pizza cafe. P- uh, being in the Midwest, they would test out restaurant concepts that would never go anywhere. Right. So there was these weird, like, pizza cafes and things that never went anywhere. So pizza cafe. My mom and dad were like, oh, can you go in and get us something? And I, I don't know. I was stupid being like, yeah, it's the middle of the day. Why am I walking to pick something up at a pizza? I walk inside. There are these people that I, I recognize from school. And I'm like, okay, who, who, who are, like, why are these guys here? And they're like, oh, it's your surprise birthday. Surprise. And I'm like, but where are my friends? Like, this girl invited people that she liked. Right. Not my real friends. So I had to sit there awkwardly and, like, be around people I didn't really care about. Right. And so I was always like, thank you guys so much, mom and dad. But, like, you don't have to do this again. Right. And so I always got anxious about my birthday for this very reason. Right. I'm not going to have that again. The next year, we're going to go get something. And my brother-in-law was a teacher at my school. And they're like, can you go grab John? He's having a tennis celebration party at this thing. Can you go grab him? And I was like, yeah, 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 uh, I'll go inside. So I go inside the sports bar, and there are the people again. I'm like, <laughs> so the first thing comes I across, need to laugh. The first thing that comes across is like, wait, are they having a party? And I was invited, so right. I start to sneak away. Right. And I'm like, wait, shit. Yeah. And I'm like, do I risk it? And because it could have been one of two things: a party I was uninvited to. Right. Which I don't want to go crash it. And none of them are good. None yeah. of these options. Or I've got to go in and be like, hey guys. Yeah, I have a photo from that. And there's one of my friends there, and the rest of the people I just did not care for. Right. And my parents were sweet to try to tell them, so finally I'm like, please don't do that again. Right. And they're like, oh, no, you're kind. I'm like, no, no, really, just please don't. So they did it twice. They finally stopped. Yeah. Because I refused to go anywhere. Right. I, I didn't trust them anymore. The week of my birthday, I'm not moving. Basically, like, can we go? I'm like, nope. Nope. Nope, we're going to stay happening. here. Like, what do you want for your birthday? I'm like, can we just stay here and have a family dinner? Like, nothing else? Just, we yeah. won't go anywhere? Wow. So because of that, I am still KG. It was three years of me being in L.A. before a single person knew when my birthday was. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So that's, that's probably way too much about me. No, it's interesting. That's wild. So. Uh, all right. So how can people learn more about oh. Stash House? But and like, when are you going to open? And what can we tell our, our people that live in L.A.? A fun fact. If people Google me and find the IMDb that you looked at, yeah. you might notice I am not as old as I look. Right. Uh, and that I'm not, I was not born in Guam. Yeah. Uh, when I was interning out here in college... Uh, at a film production company, I decided it'd be fun to make an IMDb profile because it's all user submitted. Right. So I made up one with a fake birthday that I was born on a leap year in like 1947 and I was born right. in Guam because I thought that Guam sounded funny. And Guam's hot right now with yeah. all the uh, North Korea stuff. Oh, super hot. Yeah. So it's, you know, I've said I was from Guam and born in, you know, a leap year, blah, blah, blah. So I put it and IMDb accepted it. And uh, then I, I was in an extra in a film that shot in Kansas. So I put that up. And it went away, but then it came back. So my profile, like, was around with that fake information. And I can't change it without giving them my real information. They will only change it by me showing them my passport and then putting the real data from the passport on the site. 
Wow. Even though I point to the line, I'm saying, see this line where I submitted this stuff? It's bullshit. It doesn't need to exist. It's made up. And I even say it's made up. And like, no, we can't erase it. Wow. So they're playing hardball. Because of that, people look at us weird when we get jobs. Yeah. Because they're like, so Don looks like a, you know, fairly youngish guy. And here's like, is he supposed to be this old man? Yeah. So yeah, uh, they will not be changing that. And that's, again, because of me not wanting people to know my real birthday. Right. I tried to convince people my birthday was February 29th. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so that's... IMDb. So, so if you go to IMDb, it is not the, all the accurate information. It is not because they are yeah. jerks and they refused. I just want them to erase it. Keep, yeah. keep Guam. I don't care. Guam's but fine. Keep the, the date of February 28th, but just remove the year because there is ageism in this industry and yeah. I am being affected by it. I want to fight the ageist fight. That's right. I'm, I'll sign up for that thing as well. Um, so how can people find out more about Stash House? Are you looking for people to come play? When, when can people come play it or yes. warming uh, up? So any if, of that if you want to learn more about me, my website is TommyHotton.com. It's got puzzles and stuff on there. I'm a giant Zelda fan, so it's kind of inspired by 8-bit uh, graphics. Right. Uh, there's a link in there to Stash House. Stash House's website is... A little complicated, but when you see it, it look makes sense. It's stashhow.se. So it's stash house with the period before the SE. All right, cool. It's a Swedish domain. We thought it looked cool. It's confusing. I get it. Yeah. We'll probably get another domain that people can link to that goes to that. Right. Uh, so we are currently selling tickets to Street Baptism. We have just a few tickets left. That is in That's LA. That's the, the rollout. Yeah, the prequel at yeah. Think Tank Gallery. It is the 11th, 12th, and 13th. Okay. Uh, and then stashes will likely be open a week or so after that. We're going to be testing... And we passed out business cards okay. that were puzzles, and people that solve that are the ones that get first dibs to come test. I love it. So uh, we are, they are currently being connected with how to come test. Once that's done, we will open. When you hang out with these other creators in this community, are you constantly thinking everything might be a puzzle? <laughs> no, surprise. I mean, there are times we will joke around and like, yeah. yeah. But no, and that's one thing I did the business card for, was right. people would meet up and give out flyers, but I'm like... Why are there no puzzles? Like, there might be a, a, a one-step riddle that you yeah. solve, and that, that gives you a 10% discount. Yeah. But I'm like, no, I want stuff in-game that's immersive, that's interesting. And no one else has done that. And so people are worried, being like, oh, are you worried people are going to copy your business card? And I said, no, I'm worried they're not going to. I want more stuff to play and solve. Right. This makes sense as the perfect space to do that. Right. The one hard part is that people tend to be who are the bulk of the customers are not diehard puzzle solvers. Yeah. They're casual people that... So anything you make that's overly complicated will probably not get solved by casual people. Yeah. So it's finding that balance is who you're designing for. But for me, I just design stuff I want to play. Yeah, I love that. That's a, kind of a great philosophy to go into it. It's so interesting that you've kind of broken out in this way because as I'm reading a book now called The $100 Startup because I'm starting a side business as well. But the premise in that opening chapter is that we used to think that the safe route was the corporate route. Yeah. And now it feels like the safe route is to have something that's yours. I think, I mean, the side that hustle... That they can't take away yeah. from you. In other words, that mindset is totally shifted because nothing's sure anymore. The side hustle gig and economy like thing is huge. And there's a lot about people branching off and doing their own thing. And mine kind of just came out of necessity because I was so unhappy. Right. And then because I got fired. But I, I, that lent itself to me being not wanting to be in a corporate environment where I saw people 10, 20 years in a job. I mean, I was almost 10 years, but people that this was their career right and so yeah i think finding a thing where you are the driver of your own success is at one point terrifying yeah but at another point kind of exhilarating yeah um so for you is it is it challenging or what's the biggest concern you have with yours um what if no one wants it or whatever but it's not a huge risk and i've had my my show business career i've had a lot of blows in the last few years mm-hmm. things that 
things that fell through. Uh, I was part of a labor strike. Uh, so I, I, I was kind of getting beat up by it. Yeah. And I feel like with this thing, even if it doesn't do super well or whatever, it doesn't seem to have the risk of kicking the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. It feels like I'm not putting a ton of money into it. It's something I love to do. I, I think it's a good idea. I don't think it can be as brutal. I think that's a good way of uh, framing it. If you can minimize and mitigate the risk yeah. and, and be able to eventually turn it into something, I think there's something... I mean, I'm not a big fan of you know pseudo-psychological nonsense like The Secret and stuff like that. I don't believe there's an energy in the universe where things happen for a reason. I believe you are the maker of your own success. Right. But there is a weird secret sauce that people often label as some universal energy or something that's meant to happen, but it's how people project confidence and like the, your sense of purpose. And if you feel that you're important and you're charismatic, people are now wanting to buy you or use you or, or hire you. Right. One of my favorite examples is the voice actor Rob Paulson. Uh, he did a lot of voices, especially back in the 90s. He was on Animaniacs. He was Pinky Pinky in the Brain, Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius, uh, the original Ninja Turtles. Like, he was in a lot of big stuff. But his career began to languish later on, and he decided to keep busy by making a podcast about voice acting. Right. Just as a training exercise to be like, here's the inside world, mainly because he was not getting work. He needs something to do. And he made it so big. Except, but hey, what we're doing right now. But he was able, because his voice had this nostalgia factor, people ate it up, who even didn't care about the acting part of it. They just enjoyed it as a fan. Right. And he began interviewing other actors he was friends with. And so you have these famous, popular voices of my childhood and other childhoods all, like, uniting and talking. And it's really surreal because this guy is just, he's passionate and energetic. And right. what's so funny is that it reinvigorated his career. He yeah. became relevant again because people began seeking him out to be on the show. His name was being bandied about again. And it, it just this weird thing where work begets work. Yeah. And I think even if it's you doing the work yourself and you're doing it earnestly and in good faith and you're proud of it, that work begets more work. Right. When you can self-start and self-generate your own material... There's something weird about boosting your confidence and being able to show people finished material that's like, I'm busy, I'm working. And when people look at that, they see you as being valuable. They see you as being someone to invest in. It's this weird psychological trick, but it works. And it's not a secret where you've got to hope and dream for it. It's the idea that you're actually doing it. It's the idea that you're actually making something. And you, energy-wise, you become more confident. There are times when Don and I would go into a room, and we are confident to a degree, but I'm sure we looked like Gil from The Simpsons, loosening our tie, going, oh boy, you better hire us, please. Now we go in a room, and we have a very different feel about it. And we've gotten a lot more jobs because of it. What's the difference? I think when you look desperate, people don't want to hire you. Right. When you look like you don't know what you're doing or you need the job, people don't care. But when you don't need the job, when you go in and say, yeah, this would be cool to work on. Like almost all the jobs I've gotten over the past year have been jobs that I have not actively gone out and sought, that have come after me. Because of the sense of, I were doing the escape room. I do a lot of consulting for immersive shows now and interactive experiences where people now come knocking at my door going, hey, we'd love you to test that. We'd love you to be involved. Right. Uh, I just did a thing for HBO for Big Little Lies. Uh, a really uh, cool project that a friend of mine was working on. You were describing this the other day. It sounded amazing, and I love that show. Yeah, Cole Rosner of a, a company called Play Collaborative Arts was the writer-director, and she needed some help kind of puzzling out the story elements, the interactive elements, and working with the actors in kind of the space. 
and it was an event that people would come to to nominate them for Emmys or whatever. It, basically, it was it was a promo piece for the Emmy Awards and or the awards, but also for the home video release. It was just right. to keep the buzz going about the show right. after it. Was so they'd invite influencers and tastemakers. Yeah. It was influencers, yeah. tastemakers, and press. Right, and it was private, but honestly, they could have sold out a nice run of it if they. Yeah, had. I thought it was a big little lies thing, and so it was a new original story that was inspired by kind of the characters. So it was all original, but with very familiar themes. And it was amazing. But that happened just because we happened to be part of the same community. We talked about working on something together. And when the job opportunity came up, she sent an email out. And I was like, I don't know if you need this, but here's what I have. And she's like, come on board. I want this. I need this. Like, this is great. Love it. So what did you do? Come up with puzzles or themes? We worked on the story together. Uh, It was finding the idea of you're having an audience of people that have not self-selected. They're people that are invited. They may not know what this is, what immersive interactive theater is. 90-some percent of them. They're going to be drunk. They're going to be on their phones, half paying attention. You want these people to get stocked in, to be paying attention even halfway and get the story. So at the end, when they're watching the final climax, you have to work backwards. You, what do you want people? You want people at the end cheering and screaming and applauding your story. How do you get those reactions? You get those by making a story they resonate with. That resonates with them. They, a story that has these pieces they really like and want to see. Characters they really admire. And you want them to feel smart. You want them to pick up the breadcrumbs you're putting down. And so when they get to the point where the storyline is revealing who killed the person, they're like, oh, as opposed to, huh? Yeah. Like, I, I knew it. It was that asshole. Or like, yeah. oh my God, not her. She's so innocent. Right. But it makes sense in the context. How long was this whole presentation? Um, it was the, the show itself or yeah, the, the, the show itself. The show has like 90 minutes, two hour experience. Oh, cool. Um, but what's cool is that those moments that we made sure to seed in, that these keywords, these concepts, these phrases were tossed in enough and that they could, like I said, puzzle out the story. So at the end, they knew more or less who killed whom, and they could walk out having unique experiences set within the same world so they can agree upon, okay, we know this guy killed this person. We know this person did this. We know why. What did you see that I didn't see and vice versa? So people would go into different things. Oh, how cool. But but they got the same common experience. So we have the same common story. So regardless of what our individual moments were that built up side pieces of it, we got the same big core thing. So the Venn diagram is what's in the middle. We all saw. It made sense. And the rest of it was enough that felt unique that we could show, like, oh, I saw this. Oh, I saw this. Right. Oh, my God. That's so cool. Right. How many? How long did it run for? Did they do it one it night? One, one night only. One night only. For 75 people. Oh, my God. Yeah. But it was amazing. That HBO money. Come on. HBO. Uh, Where was it at? Like, in a house? It was at the Victorian in Santa Monica. Okay. It's is that a, a hotel? It, it's, a, it's a venue uh, for, like, weddings. It's got three okay. bars in it. Nice. There's a bar called The Birdcage. It's, there's, a, like, there's a gay bar upstairs, like a classic, looks like a country club on the, like, ground yeah. floor, and, like, a speakeasy in the basement. Okay. So it's, like, three bars in one space. Okay. Cool. But it's a Victorian mansion, like, in southern Santa Monica. Nice. It's a beautiful venue. What a fun thing to do. But that's the big thing that I contribute on, is that... I come from the narrative world. I come from where I took two years of very intense Meisner training. Um, and I come from game design. And these things are all part of interactive elements. Yeah. Where it's not designing necessarily a puzzle, which I will do. I'll design puzzles. But it's not just putting, again, like a Sudoku on the floor and saying this is a puzzle. Or me designing bits. No, it's coming up with the ways, how do people experience a story? Can you have elements or choices where they say something and it changes the story? People want to feel like they have control over a story. And they're involved. So my task in some of these consulting jobs is how can someone come in, feel like they're part of the story without breaking the story, without breaking the actor's mind, having to memorize 30 different options, keeping everything on the rails. So your choices actually do affect the story in a way that still functions and is able to be choreographed where the other actors know what's going on. 
So wow. it's part logistics, part game design, part narrative, but yeah. it all kind of ties together. And it sounds like you have skill sets in all of those areas, and it kind of uses all of your stuff. It's it's a great deal of fun, and yeah. it's it's just I see it as like problem solving or um, or uh, consulting in that sense. Yeah. And that's what yeah I I've, it's it's amazing. I'm very lucky where I've, I'm working on a lot of cool stuff. Yeah. We've touched on this before, but why is are these kind of experiences meaningful? Why are they connecting? I think more, like I said, more than ever, uh, people are feeling very disconnected. I think L.A. Well, LA took a long time for me to get used to. Yeah. I come from the Midwest, and being able to connect to people out here was very, very hard. Yeah. I also chose an industry where people are naturally very fake and social climbing, so it's tough to find genuine connections in the film business. Right. But now, I think more than ever, people are very busy. They are very tight with a very close few set of people, and the chance to really connect and have meaningful interactions, conversations, events, things you go do, it's hard for to really have this feeling of belonging and the sense that you actually have a say in the world or a say yeah. in your space. So moments where you get to go experience something uphand, primarily you, you get to belong, you're part of something, you get to go on an adventure, you get your adrenaline pumping, we're drug dealers. Yeah. We're dealing you the drugs, the chemicals, the emotions that are just the chemicals in your brain. You're getting all that from us, from these experiences. Yeah. You might be scared, you might be happy, you, but you're getting these moments that are really tough to get yeah. in non-organic real settings. Yeah. So You get a feeling of accomplishment. Yeah, you get a feeling of accomplishment that you got to see something. I got out of that room and the zombie was in there. Yeah. I, we got out. You, you, you not only got out, but you got out as a team. Yeah. You did something together. Yeah. And afterwards, you get the chance to go bond with your team. Yeah. Go get a drink, go hang out, get coffee, talk, and, and have this moment where you yeah. had an experience together. Yeah. Which really, again, these are all primal things that we're getting further and further apart with that as a society. part of our DNA. And so I think it's, it's embracing these aspects of our DNA. Now, do all the experiences have to be dour and sad? No. And that's why I think people like the Big Little Lies event. Was it was soapy. It was meant to be a real dramatic story, but it was not this dark, depressing, awful thing. It was this weird, soapy, poppy thing, and just in the vein of the show. Yeah. Where you could watch it and piece together these characters and these mysteries and feel like at the end your life was not changed. You didn't have to witness someone's suicide or some really dark, heavy thing. Yeah. There were dark themes for sure, but you got these moments of, I don't know, catharsis and feeling that... I think we're still powerful. I love that. So, all right, we're going to wrap it up. People, um, you want people to come to your escape room when it's open? Yes. Or you, the warm up stuff is. Yeah. So, so all of our beta testing is filled up now. Yeah. Uh, okay. But we will be opening up tickets for uh, later in in September. I can't wait. Uh, there's a mailing list you can sign up for at Stash House on our website. Okay. Cool. We'll let you know as soon as it's open, and uh, we can't wait to have people. I love that. Um, last question. It's two parter. What are you most excited about with the opening, and what are you most nervous about? Um, I'm excited about finally being open. Yeah. It's been, uh, a lot of people in the business have been giving me shit for taking so long. Right. Um, which I completely understand. It's been a long, long process, but we've also been doing other things. So, um, I'm excited just to get it open. Yeah. Uh, I'm nervous for that very reason. Yeah. Um, I come from the world originally of writing and you can do enough first drafts or revisions where you know it's still rough. But you can give it out where you're happy enough with it to get right. it. Right. This is presentable. I can stand behind this. With, I have that feeling. With experiential stuff, there is a level of to really test it well and get to the next level. Other, you have to test with people. Yeah. And they're not always predictable. No. And that's the thing is that if you revise a puzzle thinking you know how it's going to go, you're just grasping at straws because you don't know. You have to have someone experience it firsthand to be able to tell you. And so exposing yourself... It's, to me, it's the equivalent of typing out a paper 
not reading it and handing it off to someone. And that's, that's, that's terrified to me. Wow. I know our first playthroughs are going to be very... We've, we've had a few, like, alpha tests where we haven't tested the whole room, but we've tested sections out, and those are very, very painful to watch. And we've made a number of changes, but I know it's going to be a long slog doing that. Ultimately, I want people to have fun. I want people to have a good time and be enjoy, you know, enjoy the experience and be happy about it. Um, so I just hope we can live up to those expectations. How awesome is it when something works? It's amazing. Yeah. And if it doesn't work, it's terrifying. <laughs> I'm so excited for you, and I can't wait to come and check out and see how this space that we're in right now gets transformed. And um, congrats. Thank you so much. Taking I, a big leap. Well, you're, you're, love, do, you're doing one, too, so I, I wish you luck. We're leaping. On. There we go. Yeah, we're all right. leaping together. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Thanks again to Tommy Haunton for taking time out of his busy schedule, getting ready for this escape room opening to do the podcast. Being there, it was all very another opening, another show. It was just a hubbub of activity and tools and things happening and coming together. It was great. All right, so this happened. Uh, last Thursday, I went to a party thrown by my friend Tom Goss, singer-songwriter, previous uh, podcast guest on here. It was at the YouTube space, and it was to launch his new music video called Click. Uh, he has this really fun, upbeat song about connecting with somebody, meeting them and connecting, clicking. And he did this incredible thing with the video, which is, it's like a choose-your-own-romance uh, kind of video. So when it plays on YouTube, you, you, know, you go to the party, and then you meet somebody, and then at a certain point, the video stops, and you, and you know how menus come up on the screen? Uh, other menus come up, and you can choose to stay with this person that you were with, or succumb to temptation and go with that other person in the background that was catching um, the person's eye. Or you know, it's like it, it, there's a, like a million permutations of how this music video can go. It was very ambitious. I know every time I've talked to Tom in the last several months, he's like working on it, editing it. It was directed by Michael Serrato, who did a great job, and it was so exciting to be at the YouTube space and um, celebrate this big achievement. So go to YouTube and check out the video. It's called Click by Tom Goss. And I saw Tom the other night at a friend's party, so I asked him to do a little pitch for the video for you guys. So here's Tom Goss talking about his new video, Click. It's called Click, and it's a choose-your-own-adventure music video, which is hard to describe because it's not like a music video. It's actually 53 separate music videos that interlink on the back end to create one massive adventure you can watch millions of different ways. You're such an innovator. Uh, I love it. You're an you. influencer and an innovator. So I remember I saw I saw it at this fantastic party the other night. You arrive at a party. Yeah. There's a lot of sexy people hanging around. Yeah. You connect with one and you go with them and then maybe you go with another. Yeah. So it's like you know we've all gone to a party kind of yeah. by ourselves and we we see a, a bunch of clicks of people and we have to you know then decide like which click of people am I going to try to have a conversation with? Right. So you show up at this party and you see four different clicks of people, all of which have three different sexy people who are making it very very clear that they are into you. And so you choose your click of person and then you meet all the people in that click and then you try to move on with one of them, but. You know, like I said, there's a bunch of people at the party that are into you, so they're trying to steal you away the whole time. And and you either succumb to temptation or not or whatever. Exactly. So they can go on YouTube and look for Click by Tom Goss. Yep, exactly. I love it. Last question. Is it Say you want a 4G. Uh-huh. That's your end goal. You want a 4G. Can you... Can you make take, it to the end with four you, people at the same you, time? Yeah, can you just collect... Do you have to switch out people? You can only make it to the end with one person. Okay. I know. So it's very, like, heteronormative okay. in that way. That's all right. Um... 
Yeah, it's all right. It's all right. It's good. I mean, look, I can only do so much pushing the envelope. Right, right? exactly. Right? So maybe next time, okay, I'll, it'll be like a polyamorous thing. I love it. How many... There's so many different segments of the video. How much actual material is there in terms of time? 36 minutes of video. If you watch it all. If you watch it all. And it's a little complicated because it's uh, also a music video. So as the person who spent so much time editing it, it's literally, you know, it's like a short in the sense that it's 36 minutes long. Yeah. Except no shot is ever more than a second or a second and a half long. So there's a cut every second for 36 minutes. So I spent a lot of time staring at my computer. Yeah, you worked very, very hard on it. I love it. It's called Click. It's on YouTube. You should check it out. And I love your flamingo. Talk about the flamingo suit. Yeah, no coals. Yeah? Yeah. K-O-H-L-S? Yeah, just like the the Coles, like trashy old Coles, where they had these gorgeous flamingo suits, and we took it to a tailor and turned it into shorts and fitted it up real nice, and it's gorgeous. I love it. Yeah. All right. So check it out. It's online. Thank you. Congrats. It's awesome. Thanks, Dennis. Yay. A couple other things I want to plug. On Thursday morning, the ladies of Frangela, Francis and Angela, have invited me to join them as they guest host on the Stephanie Miller Show, um, nationally syndicated radio show. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm on the, I think the first hour, 6 a.m. So if you're around radio and you get the Stephanie Miller Show, tune in at 6 a.m. on Thursday. And I also want to give a shout-out to Toll Road, the website. Uh, they did a very nice write-up on the short film that I put up a couple weeks ago, If We Took a Holiday, that I uh, created with Glenn Gaylord and Nadia Ginsburg. And it's now on, on YouTube. Everyone can watch it. And uh, Toll Road wrote a really nice write-up. Clearly, the right guy was uh, given the assignment to write about it because he got every Madonna reference. He was right in that demographic sweet spot. So... Um, I'll post that on the Dennis Anyone Facebook page, and you can check that out. So that's it. Thank you for listening. I know it was a long episode, but lots of fun stuff. We had to escape and everything. Okay, talk to you next time. This has been Dennis Anyone. Bye. Bye.